Support for Kansas City Today comes from Grandma's Office Catering, delivering made-from-scratch hot meals and individual boxed lunches for fast distribution to offices, warehouses, and factories, even on nights and weekends. Details are at grandmascatering.com. This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Nujia-Dean. Today is Tuesday, January 31st. Coming up, McCoy Park in Independence features a playground and a splash park, but it was once a tight-knit black neighborhood, wiped out over the course of just a few years. I come back and everything was gone. I was going to build a house, but it was all gone. It was, everything was gone. We'll hear how former residents are trying to keep the memory of their neighborhood alive. But first, some headlines. The new terminal at Kansas City International Airport will officially welcome passengers on February 28th. The $1.5 billion project took four years to build. It replaces the current terminals, which were built in 1972 and are long outdated. KCI spokesman Joe McBride says the terminal is opening just in time for the NFL draft, March Madness, and spring break. I'm glad to be part of of having a, a new front door to the community that's just in time for all these wonderful things that are going to be happening here this spring in Kansas City. The new terminal has been touted as the single most expensive infrastructure project in city history. Kansas City Chiefs players have some time off after winning the AFC Championship on Sunday, but Greg Eklund reports preparations for the Chiefs' third Super Bowl appearance in four years are well underway. Having been to three Super Bowls, one with Philadelphia and two with Kansas City, Chiefs head coach Andy Reid has become accustomed to all the week-long activities at the Super Bowl site. He says the game plan for Super Bowl 57 will be passed along this week. I think it's important. I think before you get down to Arizona with the distractions uh, and the different events that go on, You'd like to at least have the base part in. The Eagles are making their first trip to the Super Bowl since winning it in the 2017 season. The fate of one of Johnson County's most recognizable historic sites could rest with a bill filed in Topeka. Kyle Palmer reports. The Shawnee tribe of Oklahoma is laying claim to the historic Shawnee Indian Mission site in Fairway, where the tribe once had reservation lands. Last week, the tribe brought forward a bill to a Kansas Senate committee that would transfer the 12-acre property from state control to the tribe. The legislation has yet to be discussed, and local lawmakers who represent the area say they are still hearing from both the tribe and city officials who want the land kept under state ownership. At the same time, another native tribe, the Kaw Nation, has come out in opposition to transferring the land to the Shawnee, saying the land was originally theirs. A bill in the Missouri legislature would require health insurance to cover doula and midwife services through direct payments to the provider. State Representative Jamie Johnson, a Kansas City Democrat, introduced the bill this month to address the state's high maternal mortality rates. The current law requires insurance companies to reimburse patients who use midwife services. Doula support isn't covered. Johnson says direct payments would help ease the financial burden for new mothers. Who, after they have a baby, wants to be worried about submitting payments and getting receipts and keeping track of things to apply for reimbursement? Johnson says the bill could also help women in rural areas gain access to maternal support services. We'll be back after this.
You listen to this podcast every day because it's your KC local reliable news source. You take us seriously. But you know, we like to get down and we want you to party with us. Join us at our annual benefit, Radioactive, on June 14th. NPR's All Things Considered host, Ari Shapiro, is the featured guest at this party, and it's gonna be bumping. You gotta be there. Sponsorship packages and ticket information are available at kcur.org slash radioactive. McCoy Park, across from the Truman Library in Independence, features a baseball field and a musical playground. But most visitors don't know that beneath their feet lies the debris from hundreds of homes, all that's left of a once vibrant neighborhood destroyed by urban renewal. KCUR's Savannah Holly Bates reports former residents of that neighborhood don't want their stories to be forgotten. Nancy Coppridge Harris grew up with her parents and seven siblings at 512 West Nettleton in Independence, Missouri. They were residents of the Neck, the biggest black neighborhood in Independence that was settled in the early 1800s near the city square and populated largely by formerly enslaved people. Gardens and fruit trees lined the neighborhood. Neighbors shared the goods from those trees, like wine or pies that they had made, so no one went without. We just was like a village. It was just like a village, and, and we cared for each other. We had uh, midwives and, and, and nurses and, and doctors in our neighborhood, you know, to come to our rescue because we couldn't go nowhere else. Walter Jacobs Jr. was born at 912 North McCoy in the Neck, on the same street that his parents and grandparents were raised on. He always dreamed of building his own house on the same street. But in 1965, he was drafted to fight in the Vietnam War. And when he came back, he said it looked like a bomb had gone off. His house and the whole neighborhood were demolished. I come back and everything was gone. I was going to build a house, but it was all gone. It was, everything was gone. The entire Neck neighborhood was raised by urban renewal in the 1960s. By 1969, nearly 180 families were displaced. The city built a park on top of the debris, made up of more than a century of memories. People didn't know where they were going to live and how they were going to survive because the monies that they were offered them for their homes wasn't even make a down payment on a house. And they lived there for their all their lives and put all their, their heart and soul into their houses and to get nothing out of it. The story of the Neck mirrors that of hundreds of black neighborhoods that were wiped out in an attempt to reinvent American cities. The Neck was a place where kids would play baseball in the streets, there were fish fries every weekend, and everyone would catch crawdads in the creek that ran through it. Alongside all of that, though, was evidence of Independence's decades of neglect. In the late 1930s, the neighborhood was redlined and deemed hazardous. Property lines were drawn so that it was almost impossible to build large homes in the area. Multi-generational households were forced into small, cramped houses or scattered across several homes. Independence did not provide utilities like sewage or running water to the majority of homes in the Neck, so people used outhouses well into the 1960s. Alversia Brown Pettigrew lived at 500 West Nettleton with her mother, aunt, and uncle. Nettleton was one of the only paved roads in the area. Most didn't have curbs or storm drainage, so people would get together on her street in between hers and Nancy Coppridge Harris's house. At a reunion of former residents of the Neck last year, she reminisced about swimming with friends at a creek they called the Branch. I remember at the edge of their yard, it was just like Niagara Falls there. They all had little bridges they made to go across to come over to the back 
backyards on Nettleton. But that was just a flowing spring. Though they didn't know it at the time, the city's sewage ran into the branch, the same creek where they caught crawdads and swam in the summer. The beginning of the end of the tight-knit neighborhood came in 1957, when the Harry S. Truman Library was built right across the street from the Neck. Truman's home was just a few blocks south. When he was president, Truman signed the Housing Act into law. The program gave cities money to raise blighted or slum neighborhoods under the guise of improved housing. Instead, urban renewal programs across the country displaced thousands of people from their homes. John Taylor is a historian who studied urban renewal and independence. He believes the Truman Library was the cause of the next demolition. Just a few years after the library was built, Independence designated the neighborhood for urban renewal and began making plans for its demolition. They essentially said that these people and their past really didn't matter. We want to go develop or create another uh, attraction for this space to complement maybe the library and the square. And that's pretty, that's pretty telling. It told me that these people were in the way of this kind of economic development. But residents were determined to fight back. Walter's mother, Virginia Jacobs, led their efforts. They accused the Urban Renewal Board of offering less than the true value of their homes and discriminating against the black residents being forced to move. Virginia led a march on the Independence Square, and on the 4th of July in 1966, she and 100 other demonstrators protested the urban renewal during Truman's speech at the library. Despite their efforts, they were still forced to move, leaving behind houses that they owned for generations and losing hundreds of thousands of dollars of black wealth. A few residents managed to find homes in Independence, but many struggled. The city was still segregated, and most white homeowners refused to sell to prospective black buyers. Walter Jacobs tried to buy a house in Independence, but was unable to find one that would sell to him that he could afford. He had to move to Kansas City and didn't return to the side of the neck for more than 50 years until he spoke to KCUR for this story. It's something that's deep-rooted inside you. That's what I'm saying about moving back to independence. At one time, I wanted to move back to independence because that's all I knew was independence. But I was treated so bad out here in independence, I said I'd never come back. Today, the bounds of the neck are defined by McCoy Park. According to some reports, it was built directly on top of the debris from the bulldozed houses. The only nod to the neighborhood are two historical markers with a brief history of the neck. Nancy Copperteris doesn't think that's right. Nothing about us other than the neck marker. Uh, it should have been something about us here. This, this property belonged to us other than the, the marker, you know. Alversia Brown-Pettigrew was instrumental in securing the historical markers about the neck, and she doesn't shy away from all the pain urban renewal caused her and her neighbors. She also wrote a poem and book about her childhood there, titled Memories of a Neck Child, which she read at a group interview last year with KCUR. And splitting black families all over the land. We had to move out of the neck like a flashing spark. Independence had to make way for the much-needed McCoy Park. Certainly the prices offered some were quite meager, but there was no choice for the city was eager. Then the bulldozers rushed in, piling the neck in a heap. Some folks shouted for joy, others would sit and weep. An all-American city was the plot of this story, leaving many Nick family deep in debt and full of worry. Walter Jacobs Jr. thinks the city owes him and other residents reparations for the loss of wealth and the trauma their displacement caused. Each of the former residents continues to keep the memory of their old neighborhood alive in their own way, and each hopes that the legacy of the Neck won't be forgotten. For KCUR 89.3, I'm Savannah Holly Bates.
This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Nujia Dean. This podcast is produced by Byron Love and KCUR Studios and edited by Lisa Rodriguez and Gabe Rosenberg. To read Savannah's story on the neck, visit kcur.org, where you can find more local news from Kansas City's NPR station. Tomorrow, we'll hear how a U.S. Supreme Court decision could have a major impact on wetlands in the Midwest. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you soon. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.